is he's saying, you know, 200 billion guns are loaded. Satan cries, take aim. Better run through the jungle and don't look back. So he's like, he's warning somebody that 200 million guns and Satan, i.e. the guy who was, and this song came out in the, I think near the end of 1970, <laughs> literally while Michael Aquino was flying around Vietnam, blasting ghost tunes and shit to like sigh up like Vietnamese soldiers. And he's literally warning somebody that the devil's on the loose and he's got 200 million guns and don't look don't get mad when you hear the voice of like your grandfather being like throw down your weapons like the fight is futile I'm in hell you know like don't look back and listen because it sounds like a spirit like you're gonna get blown away or don't get mad just run and he's like he's almost like he's warning the the you know the the North Vietnamese to like watch out for Michael Aquino I know that's not what he meant but it's again (laughs) the, the power of the power of Fogarty to tap into this mythical bayou headspace and come out with stuff that sounds... I mean, I think he is leaning a lot on gospel music traditions and maybe his religious upbringing um, in terms of using these like biblical apocalyptic analogies. I mean, the other one that stands out the most, which is very prophetic and odd, is the second verse of Fortunate Son. Um, You know, some folks are born, silver spoon in hand, Lord, don't they help themselves. But when the tax man comes to the door, Lord, the house looks like a rummage sale. Huh, right? Doesn't that sound exactly like maybe Burton Cantor or the Pritzker family or people like yeah, that? And or, the fact that he wrote well, that yeah. before he knew any, before he was ever introduced to the world of Burt Cantor, he wrote that as a general kind of uh, just a general dig at the wealthy, like not paying taxes. And how ironic that then he would be sucked into that very thing. Now, I think even also some people maybe have cast aspersions, uh, Well, but just like the Woodstock thing, being like, oh, CCR was in Castle Bank, that means they're sus. And I think, as we're about to see, it's a little more, it's much more complicated than that because it's one thing to be, like there were depositors in Castle Bank that definitely knew what the fuck it was and that's why they were there and et cetera, et cetera. Credence was almost like the odd, the odd men out a little bit, but... We'll start there now because uh, in 1970, they are poised to become the truly the American Beatles. You know, like this is it, right? We don't need no British invasion anymore. Mm-hmm. It, it's, it's wonderful. These good guys like that, they keep getting described as kind of the most down home, like chill dudes. They're all married at this point. The Fogart- both the Fogarty's have kids and they're kind of on top of the world. They also bought a warehouse in uh, Berkeley called that they called The Factory, which became their rehearsal and recording space. And it's interesting like how it differs from all the other bands because they treated it almost like half joking but half seriously like a kind of like a lunch pail like blue collar job. They would show up at the factory. That's why they called it the factory because they wanted to evoke something kind of like blue collar about it. So they'd show up at the factory like five days a week. They would jam and practice for maybe three to four hours, bare minimum. They'd hang out, talk about what music was hip and what was going on. And they'd kind of work on different arrangements and stuff. But they were like incredibly hardworking. Maybe that was because they started to owe more and more master's recordings to fantasy. And... um Maybe that they couldn't keep up with the escalating number they had to give. So then I think at some point, John Fogarty goes in there and he's like, hey, remember when you said in 67, when we signed our new contract, that if we ever had a hit, we'd get a royalty increase. And he was like, oh, yeah, yeah. Like, okay, well, we're now the biggest band in America and in the world. Like, we want a royalty increase. And he was like, well, first he says, 
I got a better idea. Um, do you want to buy, like, what if I give you 10% of fantasy records and you get to like own it? Like, and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Then you'll, you'll make so much money and blah, blah, blah. Because keep in mind, all of fantasy records money at this point is Credence money. Like nobody else, they, they don't have any other rock bands. They have nobody else. Like they're a jazz label. They just happen to have the biggest band in America on their roster. And which is bringing in, I believe they made in three years, $120 million, which I looked up would be about $700 million today in three years, like a staggering amount of money. Now, first Saul says, what if you buy 10% of the company? Wouldn't that be great? John brings it back to the other guys. And I think they all kind of agree. I think there's even an argument over like whether, you know, John impetuously rejected it and therefore it's his fault. But whatever it is, they decide, no, we don't want that. We want a royalty increase. Then he comes back and says, okay, okay, wait, I got something even better. How about an offshore tax plan? So uh, the way John puts it in his meeting, 1969, he offered 10% of fantasy records. I don't know. John Fogarty says that was all bullshit and like it wasn't a real offer, blah, blah, blah. So, but at some point, Saul started talking about offshore tax planning, first via this individual, Harry Margolis, but then it changed to Chicago and this guy, Bert Cantor, and how this would be his way of giving us a bigger piece of the pie. At the time, Credence wasn't even incorporated and we were getting taxed at 90%. So we were sold this idea that our royalties would be paid to an offshore entity. So that instead of paying 90% of every dollar we earned at taxes, we'd pay something less than 10%. Our accountant and lawyer advised us to do it. We were told that this was all quite legal, that it had to do with foreign treaties, and that this was what the big, rich, old money people <laughs> like the Rockefellers and the Kennedys did. We were also, this is wild, we were also told that Burt Cantor was a former IRS agent <laughs> and had the inside scoop. Well, he had IRS agents on his payroll. It's a little different. It was only years later when we were preparing for trial that I found out this was a lie. After much deliberation among all four members, Credence entered into Fantasy's tax plan, which is tied to this outfit in the Bahamas, Castle Bank. I'll tell more of this story in a bit, but needless to say, it was a disastrous move. This is all part of a new contract dated June 5th, 1969, that was marginally better than the last one. Okay, so actually, it's around the time that they're doing Woodstock that they sign this deal for Castle Bank. And that is how they get sucked into the world of Burton Cantor. Now I think uh, maybe it's good to finally pivot. We're finally here because I think the, mm-hmm. the most is saying John talks about it, Bad Moon Rising talks about it a little bit, but I think still for this specific thing, we got to go back to the main source, Alan Block's Masters of Paradise, because he has a chapter here about CCR and he explains exactly, probably more, in more detail than anybody else has, what happened to all of their money. Yeah, he says, you know, if you remember last time, the uh, car dealership kingpin, Jim Moran, was the one that ended up going down for being a Castle Bank depositor. And Block wrote that when it came to money, Jim Moran is really nobody's fool. That he was snookered by crooked lawyers is thus somewhat hard to accept. Although there is no doubt that once he was down, the sharks feasted. He was formally uneducated, but shrewd concerning finances, not the type of man typically befuddled by sharp practices. The same cannot be said for Creedence Clearwater Revival. Yeah, so it talks, it just briefly summarizes everything we talked about. How they became big, their fortune was around the corner, they clobbered the charts in 68 with Suzy Q, an album which sold over 5 million copies, and very soon after, I guess in 1969, they were snared in Castle's sticky, complicated web. 
It started when John Fogarty, the group's lead singer and major talent, asked Zantz for the royalty increase he had promised. Zantz countered, offering instead to sell the band a small interest in fantasy. They weren't interested, so Zantz tried another idea to give them more money without tinkering with the royalty rate. He suggested a tax plan, which would yield the group more money after taxes. The first tax plan was worked up by an attorney named Harry Margolis, but the group turned it down, and then Zantz brought CCR and Burt Cantor together. The Cantor plan was complicated, having both domestic and foreign components. The domestic segment shifted the bulk of CCR's income into and through new corporate entities such as Gort Functions, Son of Gort, and 40 Domestic Trusts. By the way, I did look that up. We didn't know last time what that meant. That's from The Day the Earth Sits Still. So, oh, yeah, right. yes. The Day the Earth Sits Still, which I guess every boomer of a certain age loves that movie. And it's like <laughs> the original Blue Beam, so I guess... Yeah. Yeah, Gort is the robot, I think, that the alien yes. like sends out to like attack people for having nuclear weapons. So the trusts were created in order to place as much of CCR's income as possible into the hands of lower tax bracket family members. When the various ships were almost completed, the CCR members, along with their manager, Bruce Young, and accountant, Edward J. Arnold, owned 30% of Gort functions, while the 40 trusts held the rest. A little more maneuvering in the final domestic part was complete. The band members and the trusts, in partnership, owned a Delaware corporation, which handled CCR's concert promotion and sublicensed CCR product distribution rights and royalty collections from the band's first two albums. The foreign portion of Cantor's plan relied on four overseas trusts that owned an offshore licensing entity, a Bahamian company first called King David Distributors, then more aptly Shalom Limited, and finally Shire, created to defer uh, U.S. taxation and thus substantially reduce any foreign taxes on income generated by the worldwide sales of CCR records and related products. King David owned everything, including CCR's obligation to perform in Europe. This particular agreement was for 12 years. King David was to pay each CCR member $75,000 the first year and $50,000 per year for the remainder of the contract. To guarantee King David's performance, the troubled mercantile bank was used. We talked about that, how that was the uh, bank that was like bailed out by the International Bank of uh, BCCI and CIA fame. Yes. So very cool to back it up with that. So the plan went on with King David Shalomshire buying a Netherlands Antilles shelf company called Pythagoras. In certain documents, and more correctly, Pythagoras with an A and others. Pythagoras then bought a Dutch firm, Anshadesha Industry Matshipi. Uh, Anshadesha's role was to purchase yet a third Dutch Antilles company, this one called Erasmus. This third firm was the end of one complex line along which millions earned by CCR ran, the money stopping only momentarily at various companies to pay certain fees, etc. The point, of course, was to secure better and better tax advantages. There was much more to come. A more or less parallel structure of companies was set up for that part of John Fogarty's income as a composer, songwriter, and arranger, separate and distinct from his CCR work. Mercantile also guaranteed this arrangement. By 1970, most of the band's money was resting in castle trusts, helpfully established by the evanescent George Bebos himself. Credence Clearwater was joined in offshore bliss by Zance. Working with the Cantor firm, Zance and Cantor formed a Bahamian trust structure for Fantasy Records, which had at its pinnacle a Bahamian company called Argosy Venture. Fantasy's payments to CCR were replaced by Argosy Venture paying Shire Limited. Everything that could go offshore did. The depositing of CCR money into Castle Bank began in early 1970. Remember, that is their literally like their peak, like operating at the highest level in the game, number one in the world, and continued for seven years, much to the displeasure of John Fogarty. After just a few months, the parties began to quarrel. 
Probably the first contentious issue was Cantor's bill sent to CCR's accountant Ed Arnold. The total fee was $300,000. This covered, quote, out-of-pocket costs, foreign attorney's costs, acquisition and corporation costs, initial trustee setup fee costs, and similar items to date. In and among these and other billings, yet outside the total, was a category Cantor labeled additional billings, which were, wow, compensations payable to the Hallowell firm and to Joel Mallon, the gangster lawyer. Oh, wow. Okay. Very cool. A few years later, Arnold would characterize Cantor's charges as wrong and excessive. They were, he felt, part of a strategy of cheap stunts. In the first week of September 1970, CCR's attorney notified Jim Gooding at Castle to cease making unauthorized withdrawals from the group's accounts. Barry Angle, an attorney, angrily questioned certain payments taken from the trust, including 100000 that went to something called equity financial and management. It wasn't long before everything about CCR went sour, not the least of which was how their money was being managed by Castle. CCR itself fell apart in the early 1970s after selling approximately $120 million worth of records in three years. The split was a result of John Fogarty's desire to go solo and the internal tensions that produced. And also, I mean, technically speaking, what happens, these band tensions start to increase. Uh, Coincidentally, at the same time, they realize all their money is being fucked with in a very shady way. That is almost like the cherry. It's like the straw that breaks the camel's back, this castle shit. And there's a lot of tension because, as Tom Fogarty said later, I didn't want to be endlessly strumming rhythm guitar for the rest of my musical career. And that is all he claims that John Fogarty was saying he could do, even though he had these songs inside of him that he wanted to put out. And they almost did want to go more and like the the other guys wanted to do more of an Eagles thing. And like, what if one of us sings a song on the next album (laughs) or, you know, we, we could sing harmony and things like that. And John's initial reaction was like, no, like, I think he said, I got I got us to number one, and there ain't no spot higher than that. So why would we change anything? Like, what I'm doing works. So like, There why, ain't no uh, spot higher than that. There seems like there's always, like, a megalomaniac in these bands. Like, I know, I know. As much as he's he has a point, he is incredibly talented, and he was a very effective band leader. But, uh, you know, we'll get into it in a second. But so the end result is that these tensions build and build. And January 1971, kind of out of nowhere, Tom Fogarty, the brother leaves CCR. He announces that he's going solo. And there's a very weird year that follows where CCR decides we're going to go on as a trio and they go on tour, just, you know, John, Stu, and Doug, the three high school buddies, uh, once again. And at first it's kind of fun, but then in Bad Moon Rising it says... I don't know, there's a weird point where he goes off to Europe for a few months to, like, his marriage is falling apart, and he goes to, like, hang out with his Danish party girl, and for some reason when he comes back, he's in a real bad mood, and he basically says, they had asked him, can we sing a song on the next album, especially since there's just three of us, and he came back and was like, all right, you have to write a third of the songs each on the next album or I'm quitting, and no, I won't help you with any of it. I'm not going to help you arrange it. I'm not going to sing backing vocals. I'm only going to play like rhythm and maybe lead guitar on it. I'm not going to help you at all. And, hmm. you know, th- resulting in their final album, Mardi Gras, Passive which aggressive. is... Uh, yes, that yeah. in, from Stu and Doug's perspective... <laughs> he set them up to fail like after you know after just playing trying to teach them a lesson basically yeah teach them a lot oh you can't do any of this without me yeah 
And honestly, I mean, I've listened to Mardi Gras. Mardi Gras is is described as like their disaster record. They're kind of like their long run. They were caught in teenage jail, you know, and it mm-hmm. it just it flamed out. And they did have, you know, there were a few John Fogarty bangers on it, and then Stu and Doug both sang and wrote like the other three songs each. And you know, they're not. Uh, they're they're rough around the edges. I mean, a lot of people love to dunk on the other members' music. Um, sometimes, especially Tom, and be like, "It's so shitty compared to Credence." But you know what? But it's it basically it's an album where everyone's kind of scratching their heads, like, "What the fuck is this?" And <laughs> I think the Rolling Stone reviewer called it Fogarty's Revenge. did teach him a lesson and that was uh like Stu said he was heartbroken when he brought uh or no i'm sorry john was enraged when Stu came to him after writing his first song was like could you help me with like the arrangement on this and john was just like uh, absolutely livid and was like How, uh, that's so insulting like fuck you like you demanded to like have your own songs and now you want me to come in and save you and it's kind of like dude you're like a once in a generation like fucking freakish talent like can't you just help your bros out and like like you know you're all on the same team together but i think this castle thing was like a poison pill that got dropped into the peaceful green river of ccr you know and like ended up kind of poisoning everything so right after that second album uh or that last album mardi gras came out uh, John Fogarty announced he's quitting, and so I think that was early '73, and um, and so thus, you know, just five-ish years after CCR took their name and stormed the charts, they were done, and it's partly why they get kind of memory hold in this weird way because they weren't around for like a whole decade, even though they produced more than a decade's worth of music. They were so hyper prolific. I think that's why they're always on the radio and they, they everyone still knows them. But, you know, they, everyone split their separate ways. And John wanted to get out of the castle scheme. He wanted out as early as 1972, but was advised on numerous occasions that leaving would be foolish and financially harmful. John Fogarty became particularly angry with Saul Zantz because he held him responsible for bringing the group into the Cantor scheme. He was also incensed as Argozi Venture continued to pay large sums of money to Castle Bank despite his heated protests. So they're literally just still funneling like all the CCR profits that are coming in into Castle Bank. And he's like, stop it. And they're like, no. Like, we're just stealing all of your money. You can't do anything about it. So around the mid-1970s, John's earliest suspicions about Castle and those associated with it were accelerated by the national publicity over Castle and Project Haven. Just to be clear, because I I feel like we didn't bring up Haven in the last chapter, that was the DOJ sort of counterpart investigation to Operation Tradewinds in the IRS. So Project Haven was actually the culmination of trying to get Castle, but it ended up just getting Roger Basques, the Cantor partner who 
kept his mouth shut and didn't say anything. And uh, Moran, the car dealer guy, and and a bunch of like McDonald's franchise owners <laughs> who were not you know big not big boys in this whole scheme. So you know, Cantor, right. they threw one of the lawyers to the wolves, and then Cantor gets away with it. And meanwhile, Fogarty's worst fears seemed to be confirmed by the national press, and he determined to get his money out of what he rightly perceived as a Bahamian abyss. But it was too late. Millions had either vanished. I know. All right, nice. He's stuck in the, it's it's Mm -hmm. worse than a bayou. Yeah. Yeah, so, but it was too late. This is around 1977. Millions had either vanished or were in preparation for imminent departure. All Castle's assets, the rock group was informed by Telegram on February 14th, Valentine's Day, 1977, were frozen. The following day, a letter of explanation from Jim Gooding arrived, stating that Castle's board of directors had stopped withdrawals because of Paul Hellowell's untimely death. So yeah, uh, just for the, to be clear, Paul Hellowell died. I think he he allegedly had a heart attack in a sauna. I think at the very end of 1976, and then sort of funnily, uh, block notes Hellowell's demise, however, had actually occurred seven weeks earlier. So Gooding's letter was a stall. Castle's leadership had no intention of allowing Fogarty and others to receive what uh, they had, what it had rested in Castle. And John Fogarty actually had a very um, interesting uh, comment about that when he was told that Paul Hellowell had died in a sauna. His like memory ran through thinking about like mobsters that in like gangster movies, how a guy would be like, they put a broomstick like in the sauna and like turn it up to 110. Yeah. He <laughs> says here um, after the, yeah, they call it actually the St. Valentine's day massacre telegram in 1977, which is about two months after Hellowell dies in the sauna. John says I'd seen enough old movies in which the mob traps some guy in the steam room by sticking a broom through the door handles, turns up the heat to 4,000 and he's cooked like a lobster. I started looking under my car for wires, something that looked like it might blow up if I started the car. I was scared. I checked under every car for months. Here I was, the whistleblower on a shady bank, and all of a sudden, I'm locked in the sauna with my money on the other side. No. Oh, my God. So, yeah, that he also mentions an interesting connection again, that he went looking for his BMI songwriter profits, you know, because he sent his lawyer literally to the Bahamas, and they found... The Castle Bank offices like completely cleared out with like a lo- like a chain on the door and like empty, and you know all the money was gone. So he and his lawyer found out that the BMI money had gone into an account at the Royal Bank of Canada. He told his guys get the money back, and they sent him a check made out to Fred Fogarty, and he went and cashed it. I guess they accepted it. Uh, they wanted to send it back, but he's like, we're never going to see that check again if we send it back. So mm-hmm. then immediately after he deposits that money, the IRS contended that he owed taxes on the income that had been deposited in Castle Bank. Uh, he says the whole point of the plan had been to avoid paying income tax, though he says not completely because he's like a good taxpaying American. He never <laughs> right. meant to be like a shady asshole who paid no taxes. I mean, also, like, why 90 percent? That's so weird. Like, they really needed to have like a business manager. <laughs> like, yeah. I don't know why they were getting taxed at 90 percent before this. But yeah, so all of that money eventually in the late 70s that he was able to glean back he had to turn around and immediately pay like $1.5 million to the IRS. So it's like the IRS like doesn't end up catching any like Burt Cantor or any of these motherfuckers, but immediately comes to Castle like we don't, or it comes to Fogarty like we don't care that you got scanned. Where's our fucking money? And um, just as a funny side note, you know, uh, do you know how much money and in income taxes Burt Cantor paid in the entire decade of this time? 
Zero dollars? Zero, that's right. Yeah, yeah, zero dollars. Actually, maybe through his whole life, he fought the IRS to his death and like beat them <laughs> and never paid any taxes. So nice. yeah, so that's really wonderful. And so this caused so many fucking problems between not just between John and Fantasy, but between John and the other guys who also had their money stolen. Basically, I mean, the long and short of this is like almost all of their money disappeared. We're talking about, you know, 120. Obviously, they got paid some amount every year, but like all the money they thought they were stacking in the bank, their savings, their earnings from this massively successful career vanished. Um, and we've never, to this day, we don't know where it went. You know whose money didn't vanish, though? Cantor's. Cantor's money didn't vanish. The Pritzker family's money didn't vanish. Uh, Playboy's fair. money didn't vanish. Uh, all the mobsters that banked there, their money didn't vanish. Just CCR. Just them. I think as Tom Fogarty said, yeah, I heard something that they were connected to the mafia and the CA. It was on 60 Minutes. Um, and basically, we got left holding the bag for the whole thing. So that's that's kind of, you know, really, in a nutshell, that's what happens. They had their entire fortune stolen from them. You remember in History of the Great American Fortunes, how we talked about the silk toppers absolutely hate anybody that actually invents something or yes, innovates? Yes, I think you've mentioned the CCR falling into this category of people who invent something, and that's the that's the problem. That's they why have they have to, to be punished. <laughs> they have yeah, to go down. They have and to be punished. Yeah, they were supporting American Indian radicals. They were making really catchy anti-war songs. They were that, by the way, too much. Sorry, chuglin. Yeah, they were chuglin. Chuglin too much. They're chuglin uh, too hard. They they yeah. kept on chuglin, and it's a lot. You know. As opposed, you know, CIA likes bands to keep on trucking, like the Grateful yeah, Dead. Exactly. They don't want you to keep on chuglin. Yeah, no. this was before the Aspie masses sold out and embrace, like, a, well, I guess, you know, they, they've always been anti train because I imagine chuglin is something that trains do. That's kind yeah, of. Yeah, or a riverboat. Yeah, that's also riverboat, like a, like a steamboat. Steam, yeah. steam related. Yeah. Yeah, steam powered uh, things. Oh, so you're, yeah. you're saying there's an anti train element to this? There's an anti train, yes, definitely. They support trucking. And yeah, the, highway. Uh, yeah, cars. The labor um, aristocracy of truck Jesus. owners over. Teams, oh my God, uh, Teamsters. Who take a steam train. Teamsters who are all connected to all this. Jimmy Hoffa, St Stanford Clinton. Wow. The lawyer, huh. the partner of the keep Pritzkers. Keep on trucking versus keep on chuglin. Keep on trucking. Is there a up here? Which one came out first? Oh, no, no, no. Chuglin came out first because the Grateful Dead. Wow. Honestly, huh. the Grateful Dead were biting. The Grateful Dead were fucking biting. I'm throwing it down. They started releasing albums like many other people i think like american beauty and things like that they could never rock as hard as ccr but they went in a more kind of country americana direction after ccr blew up like they read the tea leaves they they saw which way the wind was blowing it, like everybody did everybody started getting more kind of countrified southern you know whatever instead of all wanting to be british which is kind of what they were all doing before that so yeah i mean yeah trucking and then meanwhile like these guys are <laughs> running around with the hell's angels you know brotherhood of eternal love motherfuckers touring around the country openly distributing lsd everywhere they go like johnny Appleseeds. How many times did the Grateful Dead even get arrested? Ever? I don't think they did. Like, they never got drafted. Their draft office burned down. And none of their money got stolen. I don't know where they banked, but I guess they didn't get the amazing opportunity to go to Castle. In fact, there's even another weird kind of circular uh, connection uh, or way the, the dead overlap because, okay, so when John Fogarty leaves, 
you know, he's kind of a hot commodity in like 73 and he wants to go solo and do his own thing. Who's there to rescue him in his time of need, Khalid? Who do you think who do you think comes to John Fogarty's rescue? Well, I don't recall. It's a young hotshot named David Geffen. Oh, right. David yes. Geffen signs John Fogarty, and of course he's attached to Warner Brothers, or rather Warner Communications, which just several years prior had actually, you know, the real Warner Brothers, you know, we've gone over the extensive mob financing and Meyer Lansky connections, you know, Big Lou Chesler, et cetera, that Warner Brothers had going back to the 30s and 40s, but in the late 60s, you know, I think uh, Warner Communications, uh, they had sort of the morphing with Seven Arts that Lou Chesler and all these other shady guys were that were involved in Castle and Resorts were involved in. And then Abner Longies Wilman, his uh, National Kinney Parking Company, bought Water Communications, I think in 68 or 69. And then they spun off their parking company in the early 70s and just became an entertainment company. So it was like uh, basically a, and this is widely known to be a kind of a front company of the Lansky Syndicate. And Zwillman was a Lansky associate who kind of mysteriously hanged himself, I think, at some point. I forget exactly when he died, but he has suspicious suicide. But basically, so you have the DNA of this Lansky company, Warner Communications, and then Asylum ends up getting set up with young David Geffen. And he signs really, like, kind of right at the tail end of CCR's run, he puts together he gets this new band called the Eagles, and then they become kind of the definitive band of the 70s, where you know, CCR, you could have seen CCR absolutely being the dominant band of the whole 70s. Like there's no reason they couldn't have been. Mm-hmm. But then, you know, John is flailing, he's getting all his money stolen by Castle Bank. Who comes to the rescue? David Geffen. <laughs> and so he goes and he records. Well, he records three albums after he breaks up. The first one is an odd one, but actually it's a cult classic, and I I, I stand by it. it it's pretty <laughs> It's the Blue Ridge Rangers. And this is a, a country western album of covers that he where he plays all of the instruments by himself. Like drums, bass, like a, a fiddle, guitar, like everything. Please hit me, I'm falling in It's actually like a pretty good, but it also shows a little bit of like John Fogarty getting a little megamaniacal. Like he's so in such conflict with his bandmates 
that he's like, I'm not even going to replace the, like, I don't want a band. I'm going to play everything myself. So it sounds perfect. <laughs> and so that was what he would do for the next like 15 years. Um, and <laughs> so Blue Ridge Rangers, then he has his self-titled album, which has a few bangers on it, but it didn't, it didn't really have a, a bunch of hits. And then there was the infamous lost album, which nowadays you can find on YouTube because he tried to destroy it all. Um, called Hoodoo, which right. um, is not a bad record. It only exists in like lo-fi, like demo tape form. So it's almost like a uh, John Fogarty, like Ariel Pink or like R. Stevie Moore record. It's it's interesting for that. Load your It does have a couple, I think there's Evil Thing, On the Run, and the title track, Hoodoo. But this is, again, Mr. Perfectionist. He records this album for Asylum and um, brings it to the president, a guy named Joe Smith. Now, he's popped up a few times before. Joe Smith, uh, eventually, he became the head of Asylum when David Geffen left to run Warner. And Joe Smith told John Fogarty, John, with all due respect, this is not a good album. We'll release it if you really want us to but i think you know he actually tells him john why don't you go back home and you seem really stressed like why don't you go get that monkey off your back or whatever's bothering you why don't you get that (laughs) sorted out and then you'll come back and we can make more records and he kind of interpreted this to mean you need to like face up to like burt Cantor and saul zantz and like get your money back and like so that's when (laughs) that's when he sent his lawyer to the to castle in the bahamas to get his money and they found out it's all gone and then he spun into like a decade of like depression and seclusion where he scrapped hoodoo and didn't do anything for the next 10 years except like participate in lawsuits and uh you know they and and at the same time it's worth mentioning you know tom fogarty was blazing through releasing a number of solo albums throughout the 70s and their relationship i think it you know uh, I just want to briefly like defend Tom Fogarty's solo career because even if you look on Spotify, it's literally like the way less talented brother of John Fogarty uh, made a bunch of mediocre albums that suck. His voice is not as good. It's lame. Like, don't listen to this. Is that like, what it says on Spotify? No, it's like, it, yeah, it kind of says, it just like negs him nonstop. And even a lot of CCR fans, if you go on YouTube and you watch some Tom Fogarty videos, like, they're just like, man, like Tom, Tom Fogarty ruined CCR. You'd such a big ego, like needing to quit when this is what his music sounds like ha 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 and it's like okay first of all like were any of john fogarty's solo albums like really really as good like no no member of ccr ever made any albums that were as good as ccr albums i'll just say that up front but second of all actually i've become um and this is big this is big even for a ccr head i've become a tom fogarty pilled like tom fogarty released some interesting fucking chill albums in the 70s including and this is this gets it a little wrinkly he his second album excalibur from 1972 
which has some really haunting, interesting tracks on it. The lead guitarist who played on that entire album was none other than Jerry Garcia. So he mm. became friends with Jerry Garcia, which I'm sure must have pissed John the fuck off so much that like Tom was hanging out and jamming with Jerry. No. You know, there was a song on that. There's a I few. Mean, I mean, I'll, such a, like to have that kind of enmity like towards your own brother is like crazy. You know? Oh, and like, it will get just, worse over the years too. And you know, he tries to paint it as like Tom is just like this aloof guy who kind of was egotistical, and he was basically Tom was bitter. Tom was bitter that his little brother outshined him musically and was like way more talented than he could ever be. Blah blah blah. And so he foolishly wanted to like sing a song on the next CCR record and. John pretty much shut him <laughs> down. And, to sing a song. Yeah, and like, and honestly, no, I will say there are songs on Tom Fogarty's like first couple albums that he made that would absolutely have been like some of the best tracks on like Mardi Gras, their disaster album, if he had stayed in the band. And honestly, it makes me kind of like wistfully long for like if they had stayed together and John Fogarty could like chill out a little bit, not get so triggered by like Castle Bank, that if they had let them be more of like an Eagles type group. The other guys aren't bad singers. It's just none of them are like they they are inevitably compared to John Fogarty, who has a unique, a uniquely captivating singing voice. But like Tom Fogarty has a yes. much more have you, like, have you ever smooth. seen The Rain, which is like a very like, I don't know, the lyrics like, I mean, it's interesting to me that he that's like, a dig at his so band, but that's his breakup his letter. That's his breakup letter to the band. Yeah, well, because I guess they were also rich and famous, but, like, have you ever seen coming down on a yeah. sunny day, like, you know? That was a dig so, at them. I mean, they're ungrateful. Sunny, yeah. And also Castle, like, oh, for all of them. Oh, I didn't think them. of it as, like, raining on your parade. I thought of it as, like, we're all miserable even though we're rich and famous. No, it's um, true. In a way, they, were, they weren't they were quite trapped in the Hotel yeah, but California, I, I, but I they, were the the, they were trapped in the castle. They were trapped in the They were trapped in the Vampire Castle Bank, for sure. But honestly, like, there's not really much there. Like, you know, the, the central metaphor is kind of like, it kind of gets like a little bit of mixed metaphor because like the sun is cold and the rain is hard. Like, okay. So then like the contrast isn't really there anymore. Like now we're dealing with this whole thing of like cold sun. It's getting a little bit muddy here. But like it's like you can feel the pathos in his voice. Like that really a yeah. lot of like the 
he has that same thing where like you know muddy waters is similar where like uh with the song is very simple like there's so much going on through the performance and the subtleties and yeah he's a very good performer yeah uh, he is i mean he workshopped that for years and so you know if you go listen and kind I, of I, character building that happens like in uh hoochie coochie man you can see on uh born in the bayou for sure i think Yeah, and, um, and even the way he's bending his kind of like like the way he pronounces his voids, you know, is yeah. like you know like and like yeah. When he played at that Boomer concert in 1987, and he said and he sings Hound Dog Barking and like gives a smirk, it was like the boomeriest moment of all time. <laughs> I loved it. Um, but yeah, but honestly, no, I will I will stick up briefly for Tom's career, even though he had Sussler, Jerry Garcia playing with him, that there are some great albums. And it really, I think if you want to get in to, like, you could read these whole books. You could read John Fogarty's memoir and Bad Moon Rising, which more takes a little more of the side of Stu, Doug, and Tom and their families. Really, if you listen to the obscure solo records of both Tom and John, neither of whom really had huge, huge hits on their uh, solo efforts. And John literally, like, junked his solo album and never released it you can see the uh the the artistic conflict like playing out between the brothers and i think it's it's like almost like it i don't know it's like i think you could deep more deeply appreciate the ccr lore by sitting back listening to tom fogarty he has a very smooth sensitive voice but actually honestly i had this thought that tom fogarty would have made a really excellent replacement for either Glenn Fry and the Eagles or for Bobby Weir and the Grateful Dead, probably especially Bobby Weir, because honestly, I didn't know at first that Jerry Garcia was the guitar player on Excalibur. You know why? Because there wasn't eight minutes of unstructured noodling that sounded like shit. It was like they actually went in with tight songs that Tom wrote. Again, all his, like, Grateful Dead could never write a tune themselves in their entire career. They had to have, like, CIA guys literally there like writing it for them like john perry barlow and bob hunter but tom say what you will about him the guy pumped out like seven albums of original material and excalibur i sent you the one song last night in a kind of eagles tradition we have to mention it. i think if you're going to hear one thing it has to be uh sign of the devil this is the first song that really struck me by him and it didn't take long for me to realize oh this song is about john Yes, I love 
But it's also, it's so conflicted and honestly, almost a little bit heartbreaking. Um, the amount of anger, but the chorus of being, he literally starts out like, the sign of the devil you know you're a sign of the times but then the chorus is like but i love you still and you're like oh like he still like he still loves his little brother man like even though he thinks he's the devil and i sent you last night i i caught because we did a whole backmasking thing with the eagles in hotel california there's a very obvious like reversed shout at the end of sign of the devil that comes in and I'm like, oh my, he's putting in some reverse shit. So I plugged it into the old reverse tape deck last yeah, night. Yeah, I heard it. <laughs> I, I definitely very clearly heard it. You're the devil, I yeah. It's it's not ambiguous like Hotel California. It's not like snipe their heads. It's like, yeah. you're the devil. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. Like backwards. And it's just like, oh, the anguish of it, man. For access to the full-length episode, subscribe to the Hour of Frequency at patreon.com slash subliminal jihad. Forty years we labor on this chain Working much too hard for what we gain You and I, we taste the bitter end
looking for 